you know, you, you just didn't expect to keep a car beyond, say, four or five years. And nowadays we have cars that, I mean, my car is 12 years old. It's still running fine. Um, it's a Honda. <laughs> From the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library, this is Stories from the Stacks. I'm Ben Spohn. And I'm Amaris Williams. Each episode, we sit down with one of our visiting researchers and talk to them about what they're finding in our collections. My name is William Chu. I'm a PhD candidate at Ohio State University in um, history. Uh, my actual field is in diplomatic international history, but um, I found that in the course of my research, I've sort of delved into a number of different other fields, um, such as business, such as technology, um, obviously East Asia, um, and consumer uh, culture. Um, so uh, really happy to be here at Hagley uh, today to talk about my research and how the ways, um, you know, like the, the, the materials here have, have really bolstered my research and, and enriched it. Um, and yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, talking more about it. Yeah. So, um, well, tell me a little bit about the specific project that you're here to work on um, this time at Hagley, because it sounds sure. like you've been here a few yeah. times before. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, this project has gone through a long gestation period, um, and it's really evolved over the years. Um, I really first came onto it back in 2012 when I was in Japan for the first time, but uh, essentially what I'm working on is about post-war Japanese exports in the United States. So specifically looking at the period between 1952 and 1982-85, um, and looking at specifically Japanese camera and auto exports and how sort of they played a role in sort of the rebranding of Japan in the United States, right? So you have this image of Japan as making these cheap, not very good products, um, you know, like Christmas lights and cheap toys and, you know, rubber shoes and that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, by, say, the 70s and 80s, certainly by the 80s, you know, you look at Back to the Future, you look at Blade Runner. There are plenty of examples that show Japan as sort of this forefront of technology and making these high quality consumer goods that are accessible to everybody. And so the question is, how do you get from point A, which is post-war, you know, not very good Japanese products, to 85, which is, you know, Japanese products are really good. And uh, looking at um, these sort of, so one, looking at how these products evolve from point A to point B, but also looking at using these products as sort of a way to look at using them as material ambassadors for this larger U.S.-Japanese relationship, right? So looking at how cameras and certainly automobiles um, serve as a lens for the U.S.-Japanese relationship um, from a number of different levels. So say diplomatic, or business or, you know, consumer culture. Um, and, you know, using these products to, to really understand um, sort of this evolution of U.S.-Japanese relations. And then the third part is uh, really finally, um, really the end of my um, project, and which I'm still sort of hashing out, but I'm kind of really excited, um, is sort of this idea of American economic insecurity of the 70s and 80s that's being prompted by these Japanese imports and what that's sort of prompting in terms of, in terms of American you know, political and social debate in terms of American competitiveness or uh, productivity. Uh, so those are sort of the three main areas I'm, I'm hoping my um, project can really talk to and speak to with other uh, scholars. So can you give us a little context on what's going on in Japan over this period, um, as well as what's going on in the U.S. Sure. that is sort of relevant to these transformations that sure. you're looking at? Yeah, yeah, um, that'd be great. Yeah. Um, so the immediate sort of drive for this these uh, this Japanese export push is 
obviously um, part of it, a lot of it is, you know, the Cold War in terms of the U.S. seeing Japan as a economic bulwark for East Asia, right? This is part of their um, economic um, Cold War strategy. And the idea is to, you know, you know, rebuild Japan economically so that it can, uh, you know, support consumer capitalist economies in East Asia to better resist the, the, the ideological attraction of communism. And so that's sort of the American um, perspective. Uh, the Japanese perspective is much more, you know, sort of national driven, right? It's, it's just, you know, we need to rebuild our economy and our domestic economy is not enough to sort of support uh, this production of consumer goods because we need to export. Although there is quite a bit of debate in the Japanese um, um, sort of policy world in the first decade after the war um, in terms of, you know, should we focus on more of a domestic economy or more of a international um, economy with all the various risks that that entails. Um, but you no, know, they, they, they eventually um, focus on, you know, focus on exports and sort of an international economy. And so the question becomes, well, what kind of products should we produce? And so what you have is a lot of this legacy military, um, you know, um, industries, right? So the Japanese camera industry is pr previously, you know, optical industry and the Japanese are great um, optical glass during World War II to the point that American soldiers actually in, like wanted Japanese binoculars that they captured during battle, right? Uh, so, you know, um, like companies like Nikon and Minolta uh, made, you know, like uh, bomb sites and range finders for, you know, battleship guns, right? And so after the war, you know, with the Japanese um, ban on um, sort of uh, war making capabilities and the Article 9 ban against military action, um, you know, these companies have to sort of say, well, what do we make now? And so they shifted over to cameras, uh, which were relatively cheap and low, low, low. They're, they're high skill required. They, they require higher skill, which they had, which these companies had, but they needed relatively few resources, which is ideal given the state of the post-war Japanese economy. So, you know, optical companies like Nikon went into cameras, whereas, um, you know, automotive companies like Toyota and um, Nissan um, before the war uh, essentially made trucks for the Japanese military. Now that, you know, mark is obviously gone after the war. Uh, but during the Korean War, they served as, uh, they basically fixed American trucks uh, during the Korean War and, and in the process learned a lot more about um, basically American um, quality standards, um, expectations, um, and basically help them on the road towards gearing, towards sort of like an external market in terms of what would it take to be successful in the export market. Um, I think there is something to be said in terms of these products serving as, as I mentioned before, sort of these material ambassadors that allow Americans and the Japanese to engage, whether if it's wartime through weaponry, which is a form of engagement, although not a very uh, pleasant one, or sort of the post-war one where, you know, I mean, you think of the average American, right? Um, you know, like what does, what knowledge does he or she really have about Japan? There might be a little bit through Time Magazine, there might be a little bit through television, you know, if they do a special on Japan. But for the most part, there's very little direct interaction with Japan. The only way they can actually engage with, you know, feel or engage with Japan through the senses is through their products. And so, you know, in the process, you know, they they may sort of see, oh, well, over time they may evolve their opinions of Japanese products. So, oh, you know, these products are pretty well made and, you know, they're, they're 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 quite clever, or they're very um, um, cost effective. So it seems to me that I imagine there's an enormous bias in the beginning of this period yeah. among many Americans yeah. um, again, just because of the sort of vitriolic rhetoric, um, especially during the war, 
um, that was so normalized in you know anti-Japanese bias. Sure. Um, and so I'm wondering if you can say a little bit about how that figures into your story and how the Japanese sort of negotiate that. Um, yeah, um, I mean, so to be honest, that is actually probably one of the more tricky parts of my project, just because um, there isn't so much that's overt, that's that's say, stated. Um, so based on what I've seen, so I spent last year in Japan, um, you know, doing archi um, archival research there. And based on what I've seen, there there's very little discussion about, so they do have, you know, thought pieces and, you know, reports back from the field in America. Uh, on the state of the American market. But from what I can see, there's nothing overtly referencing the wartime memory. And some of that may be just because they don't want to deal with that themselves, right? Because it's, you know, it's dicey and it's hard to sort of um, discuss. Um, and, and a lot of it is also sort of the sort of the post-war Japanese um, trend of sort of sublimating what happened during World War II uh, under sort of the atomic bomb and sort of um, promoting this idea of uh, you know, sort of like through the atomic bomb, you know, Japan has suffered for the world's sins of war. And thus, you know, a reborn Japan in the post-war period is one that is peaceful and um, basically fo focused on sort of international peace, international organization, being just a good citizen. Um, so that may be part of this this trend. I, I don't want to overstate my bounds. Um, that, that may not be the case. But certainly on the Japanese side, there isn't that much that talks about over either racism by American consumers um, or sort of memories, uh, wartime memories, um, in, in a factor in terms of how they're trying to break into the U.S. market. On the U.S. side, to be honest, I haven't seen a whole lot either. Um, again, it's maybe it requires a deeper level sort of textual reading and sort of breaking down like, you know, the references to the Japanese that, that may be couched in sort of wartime propaganda, right? So the, the imagery of Japanese as monkeys or like subhumans or, uh, you know, just like, um, you know, like, like, you know, oriental stereotypes, so on and so forth. Um, there, I'm sure there's, there is probably quite a bit of that. Um, and, you know, that sort of requires a level of reading that, um, that will take a little more time. Nation branding versus corporate branding. So the companies themselves, um, for the most part, avoided using overt Japanese imagery. Um, and, and there is this um, claim that basically the Japanese have this international style or this almost this um, anodyne style that is not overtly, you know, you, you can't look at a, you know, like a Sony transistor video, uh, radio and say, oh, that's a Japanese radio. There's nothing that, you know, there's nothing on that that, that suggests that it's um, Japanese. Um, but on the national and sort of the industry-wide side, there is a much more stronger um, evocation of nationals' um, views and um, ideas. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about, since you're kind of talking about some of these particular sources now, if you can sure. share a little bit about some of the specific stuff that you've been working with here at Hagley. Um, you know, talking a little bit about the collections you're using, but then also maybe giving me some examples of sure. particular like gems that you found okay. or things that surprised you. Yeah, yeah. Um, so in terms of the Hagley, uh, sort of the three main areas I'm focusing on are um, the Dictor materials. Uh, so Ernest Dictor's, um, you know, motivational um, consumer motivational research um, uh, psychologist. Uh, and primarily what I'm trying to do is, uh, so part of my project is sort of also setting the context um, in which these Japanese cameras, uh, these Japanese goods are coming to the country, right? You know, particularly in the sort of the 60s periods where there's a lot of 
change that's going on in the sort of the consumer economy in terms of what consumers want, um, how advertisers are trying to appeal to them. And so, so it's interesting watching, uh, reading Dichter's material, say like a, a study that he did for Chrysler. Uh, was it Chrysler? Was it Chrysler? Oh, no, no, I think it was Ford. No, Ford in like 59 uh, on sort of like, you know, uh, American views on uh, on comfort and power in cars. And it's, um, you know, he basically states that, you know, our findings suggest that 80% of um, like comfort by, by far is the most important quality that they look for in cars. Um, contrast that by say like, um, say, you know, like the late 60s uh, when he's doing the similar study again, but I think this time for either Chrysler or Volkswagen, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, but you know he's finding and it's a study on why do people buy foreign cars um, and what he's finding there is that you know what they really value is durability and quality and basically reliability and so there is a shift from um, you know like what's being said in the late 50s in terms of what consumers want and he, you know, and he to be fair he does show very much um, that they are oftentimes very inconsistent with sort of voice and what they think they want. Um, but at the same time, by the 60s, you know, their their preferences or their state of preferences have evolved, be it sort of their own actual preferences or the state of technology in automobiles have evolved to the point where comfort is no longer an issue, although that's not true, I don't think. Um, uh, but, but and also maybe they've also internalized a lot of the sort of the sort of the uh, consumer rhetoric of the 60s to, sort of, to say, you know, what we actually want is durability and reliability um, um, in cars. And to be fair, this is still maybe like a, you know, like two or three segments within like six or seven segments within the uh, marketplace. Um, but it's interesting to see how consumer tastes are evolving during this time and how Japanese cars are, whether if it's, you know, they're directly tailoring their products to meet these uh, consumer demands, or if they are sort of a right place, right time um, type of situation, I think it's most likely both. Um, but it's interesting to see how uh, these sort of consumer tastes are evolving at the same time that Japanese cars are coming in and how Japanese cars are in many ways sort of hitting these, um, these, these, uh, these, these, these desires um, with the right kind of products, or at least for certain um, parts of the, um, um, consumer market. So that's sort of the Dichter materials I've been working with. Um, and, and that's really fascinating to see sort of how the, uh, certainly with the car market, how tastes are evolving. Um, the other uh, second collection I'm really working with is the uh, sort of the Z Taylor Vincent um, collection um, on transportation, but primarily focused on sort of just old car advertisements. Um, you know, uh, I, I do not have the time to flip through you know, 5,000 issues of Time Magazine or Sports Illustrated to look through um, all the car advertisements. Um, what Hagley has done is, uh, or through the Vincent Collection, is to basically assemble all the um, car adverts from, you know, Time Magazine, Sports Illustrated, and so on and so forth, from, from about a period of, I think, from the 60s to about the 90s. Uh, and so it's, it's really great to have all those um, car adverts just there at any one time. And it's interesting to sort of compare uh, how the Japanese car companies are sort of advertising their wares as opposed to how American cars are advertising their wares. And I think, I've, uh, and out of these, I think what's most distinct is really Honda in terms of Honda has, this, has its own corporate image of being sort of like we're engineers. We're not, we're not focused on selling cars. We're focused on making the best engineered products, be it cars or 
um, you know, motorcycles or like, you know, lawnmowers or so on and so forth, whatever Honda makes. And it's very evident in their own, their own, um, their own advertisements, right? So obviously all advertise, all, all, all companies, you know, all car manufacturers talk about how their car products are the bestest, mostest, fastest, most powerfulest, uh, or the cheapest. But Honda does in a way that sort of contextualizes and sort of has a much more way of, uh, much more focus on what the consumer will want, right? So one great example is how they have this one ad, I think from 78, where they show one page, it's a picture of a grocery bag. And the next page is the back of a Honda Civic um, wagon or, or hatchback. Um, and they basically explain how they designed this, the size of the the um the the sort of the, the 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 truck area around the size of the grocery bag basically it will fit you know like you know i don't know say 24 grocery bags perfectly and you know there's no jostling there's no worries about you know like your your groceries tumbling over and falling over and, and spilling all over the trunk lid um and so 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 you know like they that may or may not be the, the case but it does show a certain degree of awareness in terms of how Honda is aware of the needs or what might appeal to its um, um, typical consumers who are at this time, I think mostly young people and sort of young families um, and sort of their own needs and sort of positioning themselves as, oh, you know, we are devoted to sort of finding good solutions that that make sense for you. Um, yes, it is, you know, uh, a, 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 a car that's cheap to run, but it's also well-designed, right? It's designed the design does not come suffer at the cost of you know like you know building a, a, a economical car. Uh, so so th these kind of nuggets I'm finding in the Vincent collection are really awesome. Um, and then finally the final um, uh, collection that I haven't gotten a chance to really look at yet uh, because I'm only halfway through my stay uh, is um, primarily the materials from the National Association of Manufacturers and also the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And this sort of goes into sort of the last part of my project, which is sort of American reception, American reactions to um, Japanese um, um, export, uh, imports coming into the U.S. and how that's pr prompting what I sort of for now, we'll describe it as sort of this crisis of American economic self-confidence. Um, and because, like, based on what I've seen, both uh, in, say, the Carter um, Library that I've been to, uh, you know, there's a lot of debate at this time, and they're directly referencing Japanese products um, as part of this debate of, you know, how, what do we have to do to um, increase American economic productivity? How do we improve our, you know, trade competitiveness? How do we do all of this? And they're using the Japanese as direct references, um, both in terms of, you know, whether if it's, you know, like through business literature as like, oh, Japan is number one or Japan Inc. Or, you know, what can we do the samurai way to business or you know, that, that kind of nonsense. Um, th there is some of that, but there's also sort of a prompting a larger and deeper national conversation about, you know, what do we have to do to sort of bring our economic economy back up to the to where we think it should be and so you can get that through sort of you know the um, political and sort of diplomatic archives but it's interesting to sort of see how the business um, or industry is sort of viewing this issue right because they're really at the forefront of you know addressing these productivity um, pro productivity and competitive concerns so it's interesting to see how the national uh, how NAM and how the uh, Chamber of Commerce are sort of looking at these um, concerns. Uh, the NAM materials are currently being processed. Um, so, so the things that are sort of like the late 70s and through the Reagan years, which is sort of where 
I would really like to look at um, for this question of um, economic self-confidence. Um, that's still currently being processed. Uh, so, you know, hopefully what this means is a long-standing, ongoing relationship with Hagley, and I hope to come back many, many, many times over the next, well, you know, certainly in the next few years, but, you know, obviously, hopefully this can be a sort of a career-long relationship that I can have, have with Hagley. But no, but no, it, it is it is a really fascinating way to look at these questions of economic competitiveness um and and in part of the sort of decline of um, nam in terms of its sort of its um political weight um you know vis-a-vis -vis, say chamber of commerce which is much more surfaces focused is part of this is you know is reflective of this decline in american manufacturing competitiveness um or maybe not decline in uh manufacturing competitiveness, but it's rather sort of the evolution beyond manufacturing into services. Um, and that's also fairly illustrative. Um, so looking to grab what I can, uh, certainly from sort of the pre-75 period, uh, in terms of, you know, what early signs they had of these sort of this Japanese economic um, uh, challenge um, that's, that's occurring before 75. But uh, what will be really interesting is once these the the post seventy five materials become available to really see you know what NAM and um, the Chamber of Commerce is saying during the sort of the the really hot years of the Carter and the Reagan administration. So, yeah. Um, I you you were talking about um when when I was listening to you talk about the Honda ads. I mean, I think of another thing that I I assume is sort of in the background of some of this. You know, and this is to go back to the sort of why question, like why do American consumers come to accept Japanese products when there are a lot of reasons why they might not at right, the beginning, right. which seems to me to be like your, your like one of your main questions here. Um, and when I'm thinking about cars again, um, you know, you, you had talked about cars being economical, and I'm thinking about fuel economy yeah, in yeah. the context of the 1970s. Yeah, so um, I think obviously the, the oil crisis um, of 73 uh, and then later in 79 definitely played major roles. So Honda, part of Honda was able to grow faster than any of the other Japanese competitors. So I think Japanese cars grew by six or seven times um, in terms of um, with, uh, in the 70s themselves. But Honda itself grew like I think either 15 or 20%. I mean, Honda sales are tiny in the early 70s, but by the late 70s, they're clearly in the sort of the Japanese big three. It's no longer just the big two of Nissan and Toyota, and they're able to do so because they basically developed the CVCC engine um, in like 73 that meets um, the EPA uh, clean air requirements of 75 um, without using a catalytic converter, which is expensive to install and saps power. So they're able to build a car that, you know, um, meets emissions requirements without the cost of, um, you know, outside uh, equipment. And, and, and they're able to turn this into their own advertising. Right? So this is a connection between technology and marketing, which is something that I really want to stress in this project, which is, you know, there's a lot of studies on Japanese production methods and technology. There, there's not that much I can add to that, um, you know, uh, but I think the, the connection where I'm interested in sort of exploring is the connection between technology and marketing, right? So there is a Honda ad, I have to find it somewhere, but I, I know it exists, where they're talking about how the Honda CVCC engine is, um, saves you, the consumer, the, the driver, money in three ways, in, in, in ways that the consumer and driver can understand, can relate to, right? It saves money because one, um, you don't have to install a catalytic converter, right? That costs money. Two, 
it's um, the fuel economy is terrific and that saves you money. And three, um, and this is something that I did not realize, but you know, I apparently it's it's quite important. Um, resale value. Like when you trade in your Honda, you're going to get a higher resale value. No matter if you trade in trade it in for a Buick or for another Honda, you're going to be- get better resale value. And so these are the three ways in which Honda CVCC engine Civics, you know, help you out as a consumer, right? And so they're able to sort of take this technology and then turn it into their marketing and advertising. And that's that's. I think Honda, more than any of the other Japanese um, manufacturers, is able to. And so I think the Japanese have either directly or indirectly played the role in this evolution in terms of what consumers expect um, in their cars, be it you know, simple styling cues, right? So we no longer have massive fins on our cars. But also things like, like you know, certain things should come standard. Like we should have, you know, like reliability. You know, we... We should expect that you know, like um, that that the, the used market, um, used car market, is a viable place to get a car. Whereas they were less, much less so in the fifties, because you know you you just didn't expect to keep a car beyond say four or five years. And nowadays we have cars that, I mean, my car is twelve years old. It's still running fine. Um, it's a Honda. Um, you know, it's you do have these these evolving expectations, and the, I think the Japanese products, certainly in the camera and. The auto fields, I've talked much more about autos, but I can talk about cameras for another hour. They do play a role in this. And I think it's fascinating to see, you know, like how American social, consumer, cultural life have, have evolved in, in concert with these um, products. So, I did want to ask you a follow-up question, actually, about the cameras versus cars things. Is yeah. there, is there, you know, so you, you, you've chosen these two kinds of consumer sure. goods um, to kind of carry your narrative. Um, and explore these questions. Can you offer me a little bit of a comparison between the story of the sure. camera and the story of the car? Like, how are they similar and how are they different in yeah. what they add to your... I, I chose cameras and cars because cars you have to do uh, anytime you talk about Japanese exports. And I do want, I did want to end up in the 80s and sort of talk about this larger national dialogue that cars are able to elicit that cameras just don't. I mean, to be perfectly honest, I love cameras, but they don't. Um, and, and so, uh, as a point of comparison, that is a point of comparison, right? Cars are a much more American industry, whereas um, cameras themselves, um, you know, it's a much more complementary relationship they have with American film and camera manufacturer, or, um, manufacturers, right? So, the biggest name, obviously, is Kodak. Um, but Kodak is primarily a film manufacturer, not a camera manufacturer. They make cameras, but it's only as a vehicle for selling more film. So when the Japanese come over here and they, what they do is they really sort of focus on the medium segment and expand up and then down. Um, but at, at first when they're um, coming over to the US, uh, into the US market, um, Kodak doesn't really see them as a threat because Kodak for the most part is focusing on more of the low end general user uh, market, right? So your famous brownie cameras and your Instamatics, um, that's really where Kodak is making its money, right? It's selling film. And so they say, well, you know, great, the Japanese are coming over, we're selling more film, that's that's fine. And, you know, even as of like, I think 75, 76, you know, 85% of the cameras sold in the US are Kodak cameras, right? They're the Instamatics or the pocket Instamatics. Um, but the Japanese 35 millimeter really does make a larger imprint in terms of sort of how it's shaping photography culture and in terms of the technological developments they're able to sort of incorporate makes themselves 
makes it much more appealing to the mass um, audience by, say, the 80s. Um, and that really plays a role in Kodak's downfall um, in the 80s and 90s. Um, but in terms of comparing the two um, uh, industries between cameras and autos, cameras uh, have a, less, a much less confrontational relationship with um, American industries than uh, the cars do, obviously. Um, and also, cameras are a lot earlier. Cameras, is, the story about cameras is really in the late 50s and 60s, whereas cars are much more of a 70s um, um, story, right? So cars, uh, Japanese cars do start getting imported to the U.S. in the early 60s, but the I think even in like 1970, they only have like about 3.4% of the market, whereas by 1979, 1980, they were like 21%. And so just in terms of scale, that's a massive change. Um, in terms of, you know, cameras, you know, by, I think, the, like 1963, Japanese cameras have overtaken the Germans in sale in, in, in camera sales volume um, in terms of imports into the U.S. And by like you know the late 60s, they they have an outright control, like they, they outright dominate the, the the worldwide camera industry. And it's really really surprising to see how quickly they've done so. Um, so yeah, so so I think, and and then finally, um, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Um, there is the 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 camera industry people you talk to will always say that Japanese cameras um, were the industry that basically made it easier for all subsequent Japanese exports into the U.S. in the sense that they were the first ones to sort of um, set up a sort of very tough um, export regime, uh, ex export inspection regime. Um, so quality control both within the factories and also you know before they're getting exported. Um, they set up a service center in New York in '55 that goes on for about six years and then a little bit after that, um, all to sort of promote and to reassure American consumers that, you know, if you buy a Japanese camera, you do not have to worry about it falling apart on you or not being able to get it serviced. Um, and so they're, they always claim the camera industry folks that they are the ones who first established this idea of Japanese quality in the eyes of Americans uh, and that all other industries subsequently were able to sort of benefit from them and sort of to follow in their own wake. Uh, so that is their claim. Um, that's obviously a parochial view, um, but I think there is a lot to it. Um, you know, uh, I mean, I guess the only real competitor to Japanese cameras are, um, you know, transistor radios. But even then, I, I think, yeah, I'm willing to give it to cameras. So, but you know, it's it's all it's it's you know sort of the, the various ways you can connect these products to sort of these larger histories is is one of the most compelling parts or one of the most exciting parts of this project, I think. To learn more about Hagley's grants and fellowships and search our collections, visit hagley.org research. That's H-A-G-L-E-Y dot org. And to listen to more stories from the stacks, you can find us at hagley.org slash stories from the stacks, all one word, or simply subscribe to our feed on iTunes or SoundCloud. Be sure to stay tuned for our new podcast, The Mill Race, launching in July 2018.